Liquids Flowers podcast. It's episode five of season two. And I know it's a couple of days late, but I've been under the weather and I didn't want to subject you to my super nasally voice for this podcast because it's going to be a bit of a different format because uh, we are going to be hearing from Bill Johnson. But what he has done is he's written me a script for me to read in his voice. So um, I'm going to be hopefully doing justice to it. There is a ton of information here. There's like a hundred years of Dahlia growing knowledge in in, in this uh, podcast. So stay tuned. Really amazing stuff. Bill absolutely pioneered the Dahlia anemone form here in Australia. So great to hear from someone like that. Now, before we get stuck into it, though, I did want to talk about what's going on in Caitlin's and my garden. Caitlin is going, uh, she's a powerhouse. She's taking cutting still. She has got Dahlia's coming up everywhere um i'm i'm sure she is going to be putting something absolutely amazing on the show bench come the exhibition season and you know mid-february and march i'm about uh i'm not taking cuttings anymore i stopped about a month ago um because i was running out of room but i've got lots of plans to stop over the next couple of weeks lots of weeding to do and lots of tying up and supporting stems to do as well so, I guess with that out of the way, I'm going to start reading um, what Bill Johnson has sent me here. Now, I, I'm going to be reading it as if I am Bill Johnson, you know, like first person, but um, I think it will work out really well. So, I, I look forward to you hearing it. Nothing more to say. Let's get stuck in. In the early days, it is almost a century since I saw Dahlia's at an aunt's house, not to last as they were ripped out and replaced by lawn. In those depression years, few people had money and the family skipped between landlords. No time for roots to be put down. Didn't grow anything at all. Don't remember seeing dahlias anywhere. A decade later, things were better and the family brought a house in the sand belt. I brought a tuba, Willen den Uden, or a name like that, and a grandmother saw it and exclaimed, that's what they were like when I was a girl. Yes, a ball. They dominated most of the 19th century. Other cultivars followed over the decades, and on one occasion I was shocked to discover that a large exhibition flower had vanished, cut off, gone. It disappeared, however. At mealtime, on a dinner plate with salt and pepper, my mother said, You love it so much, you may as well eat it. (laughs) It was a shock on moving to Blackburn and encountered clay after living on the sandbelt. The spade bounced off it. That was 67 years ago. The clay has long since been tamed. In the 40s, I saw a pink dahlia outside a broken down country cottage, but didn't know what it was. Not until I purchased the Dahlia Growers Treasury by A.T. Barnes, published in 1954, an anemone. The first known one was an island in 1826, but the stems were very poor and it didn't catch on, especially in those ball days. By 1940, there were very few knowns who exist in Australia, apart from the ubiquitous comet, then in parks and gardens, but not a normal anemone. The only other one was honey, which I had acquired from a grower in Canberra, but couldn't do anything with just one, so the search was on to find others. In the days of snail mail, this was slow and laborious. Damp in England had given me the names of various growers and societies, but my queries rarely invoked a response. Exceptions were Bill Tapley in South Australia, 
Ron Wilkies in Goulburn, and Wayne Holland in Canada, who was to later share a genetic interest. Finally, in the mid-90s, there was contact with Evie Gullickson of Olympia near Seattle. Hall of Fame grower, she grew anemones down the side of her house. She sent seeds also to Ron, who had joined my quest, and she was about to book a sea cruise to Melbourne to visit a friend, Wynne Robertson, who was a prime mover with the Ringwood Dahlia show. But that was not to be, as Evie died soon after. Her plans were apparently lost with the exception of Goldie Gull. Evie had spoken of it in a letter in that it had several rows of rays and she was striving for a single row. She also spoke of her battle with virus and how she never received feedback from those to whom she gave seeds or plants. Same with me decades later. At first, few seeds germinated, but taking the clue from Evie, side of the house, I kept them separate. Most writers of the time said anemones could not be bred or would revert to singles, but that was clearly not so. No trouble at all if isolated. After a slow start, there were soon lots of them, and for a decade or more, I grew no others. I recall they were dismissed as Bill's glorified weeds. At first, most, if if not all the rays, reflex to the stem, but that is largely culled out. I don't claim to be a good grower and am rather slapdash, but it does not matter as I am not an exhibitor. I don't stop my plants, remove auxiliary buds or be concerned with flower size. For decades I've grown all of mine in 8 inch plastic pots sunk into the ground to rim level. Might have been a pioneer quite common these days. At season's end they are lifted and tipped on the side to wait until spring. There's usually little rotting, perhaps 1%, though this year with prolonged wet, it could be higher. Virus used to be a problem, but as the plants are 97% my own, it has been culled out. Again, perhaps a 1% loss. The particular virus is tomato wilt. I've been fortunate not to be affected with serious pests and have never sprayed a few snails and earwigs. I rarely fertilise in the usual sense, but have nine compost bins, usually full to overflowing with dahlia cuttings and weeds. Nothing is added and the compost is 100% green, which is supposed to be a no-no, but works for me. One year, 47 degree heat shriveled and burnt many plants, and shade cloth was then introduced. A mixed blessing as before plants grew to four foot and didn't need stakes. Now many are seven foot and are a problem in windy conditions. Flowers are on very long stems. Being interested in polyploidy in plants, such as the dahlia, wheat, tobacco and others, I found the name Lawrence popping up, but could not find any other detail. Other than that, for seven years in the 30s, he solved the vexed confusion of dahlia colour. I told a daughter-in-law at Melbourne University of him, and amazingly, she discovered 600 pages of his notes in a disused cupboard. I arranged for Xerox to allow me to use their machines on my own after dark. Very tedious as pages had to be done one at a time. I sent a copy to the American Dahlia Society in finding that they knew nothing of Lawrence. Neither did Professor Virginia Woolbot, who teaches Dahlia genetics at Stanford University. In return, she sent me a thesis on Dahlia enzymes. Well, I really hope you're enjoying the story so far, but before we go much further, I want to give you a heads up that we're going to get into quite a few technical terms where Bill Johnson's going to try and teach us a little bit about 
um, how Dahlia inheritance works. So if you find yourself a little bit perplexed and unsure of what some of these words are, well, do the exact same thing I do. I Google it. I watch a YouTube video about it. And it really just kind of ties in the entire context of what Bill's trying to teach us here. So I will give you a quick heads up though. When he begins talking about octoploids, uh, what he means is so if you consider a human being, we are a diploid. We've got one set of DNA, half from our mum, half from our dad. When you get into an octoploid, it's four times that amount. Octa, eight, it all makes sense, right? Um, now, also, when he begins talking about Mendelian genetics, what he means is uh, Gregory Mendel was the monk who worked out basically how inher- inheritance works, Um down to a mathematical calculation. So he could look at his sweet peas and go, if I cross this red one with this blue one, I'm going to get so many blue ones and so many red ones in the next generation. So um, a quick little heads up before we go much further, but uh, I hope you enjoy the rest. Because the garden dahlia is an octoploid with alloy auto tetetraploidal inheritance, the usual Mendelian procedure does not apply. It is much more complex. Lawrence had the help of Rose Scott Morrison, founder of biochemistry and testing and an expert in advanced math, which helped where complex permutations were involved. The first issue to resolve was the origin of the Dahlia. In brief, it was from two ancestral forms with 16 chromosomes with AV and BY colouring. The two later fused and doubled to 32. There are now 25 of these species dahlias, including tree dahlias. Keith Hammett is the expert. Then came another doubling to 64, the garden dahlia of today. The second issue was dahlia colour. Each of the AVBY factors can be present up to four times or not at all. Plus there is another, H, which Lawrence discovered that inhibits the action of the others such as to make a red into an orange or a yellow into a cream. A and H are cumulative. B and Y are at full strength even if present only once. And V is saturated by V2. Thus, a 20-letter code exists for every dahlia, a vast number of permutations. IV and Y produce pigments known as favones, apigenin, and quercerin, a grounding or base on which A and B express themselves by producing anthocyanins, a reddish colour, and pelagonin, a purplish colour. Like roses and carnations, the dahlia lacks delphinidin and cannot be blue. There are quantitative values between the ABYV that interlock and modify one another. Actually, Lawrence used I, but V is used here to distinguish from the letter numeral. These days, his research papers are on the net under WJC Lawrence or under Dahlia Colour. Looking at the historic side, there was the work of Gerald Wayland. We'd had a little contact before his death as both had a quill Dahlia at the time. At huge lengths, the Alpha Omega of Dahlia's detailed Dahlia developments from 1787. Lots of disputes between geneticists. The first bull Dahlia was in 1829, but by 1839, Dahlia mania had set in akin to the Dutch tulip fiasco. Scores of them with high prices. Wayland has many items of interest. To take one as example, we usually think of fimbriateds evolving in South Africa. 
the efforts of Higo. But in reality, the first no one won was Australian, bred in Wallsend near Newcastle in 1896. Its name was Progenitor and was displayed in England. It was said to be furcated. There are also Dr. Keith Hammett's papers with others on polyploidy using GISH, genomic in situ hybridization. There are also his genetic discussions with Wayne Holland. I was the lesser leg of the email triangle of the time. Keith views Lawrence as a genius and he encouraged me to buy the autobiography. There was only one copy available via Canadian bookstore. Expensive and ironically, little to say about Dahlia's. A lot re Lawrence's many other pursuits, awards and honours. At that time, there was very little about Australian Dahlia's. So Wayne arranged for the Australian Dahlia Society magazine to have an Australian page under a picture of the Opera House. It lasted for a few years and did evoke a degree of interest. These days it is very different, with Steve Cox reporting in Dahlia's of today. My six types at present. The simplest is an eight-petaled flower around an open centre, then those with a collar and those with a pincushion centre, single, collarette, anemone. The ray petals are flat. If the petals are involuted, rolled along that length, then they become anemonid, orchid, and orchid. In the UK, orchids are known as stars, a better name. An anemone variant that has flattish florets in the centre is a carnation. Rarely an anemone will have a collar. I style them anemorette. I wish to breed my own black-leafed dahlia, and knowing that purplish stems indicated the presence of the black factor, set about crossing them. It took nine years to get the first, a few years for a second, and then plenty, dozens of them. I prefer those with laced foliage. Indented. All my plant names have colour-coded first three letters. Payback is purple and yellow, and if it's the one colour, then the first vowel cannot be A. In the case it is the one colour, the vowel will be U if a paler shade, and I, E or O if darker. Thus, Pendle is darker than Purex. A rough guide. The Australian Dali Society colour chart has 36 purples. For record purposes, there is a second code in the adjacent column to the names so that the two together say everything. No need for a description. The flats are coloured orange, blue and green with the involuted mauve, dark blue, dark green. A few of my anemones found their way to America and one year, four of the five best in show were mine. Those glorified weeds came a long way. Seeds were sent to replace Evie's lost ones and some of those led to winners also. The wheel has now flipped, however, with the recent American ones better than mine. Notably, Sandia Bill J, raised by the Bollies and currently named after me. A good note to finish on, Bill. So there you go. I really hoped you enjoyed that little rundown of Bill Johnson's Dahlia career. I just think it's just, I don't know, it, it actually gave me chills reading some of it because, I mean, we're talking a hundred years of Dahlia growing and 
the man knows the plant inside out, doesn't he? So um, I really, really enjoyed um, recording that for you. And um, I hope you enjoyed listening to it as well. We'll be back to the uh, normal format for episode six. Um, and we'll be back to uh, posting these a lot more normally uh, in the future. Back to the two week, um, the fortnightly scheduled release. So there you have it. Enjoy. And thanks for listening.